0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right. Well, it is great to see you this morning. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 4, that's where we're going to be hanging this morning. And we're actually going to be all over the place. It's going to really serve you to have the Bible open and on your lap and ready to go this morning. Galatians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Underneath every three or four seats, you should find one. So um, if you don't have a good Bible, feel free to take that one home with you today. Galatians chapter 4. So we're in part 3 of a set of sermons called Sons and Daughters, where we are looking at the doctrine of adoption, wading into these very rich waters of God's grace, right? That God would look at you and I, a God-hater, and make us sons and daughters of His. This is the amazing reality of what, what we're learning about in this idea of God adopting us, his adopting grace for us. And I hope that more and more, this is becoming like a way that you're seeing your life. It, it's, it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of when you think about who you are, for you to think about yourself in relationship to God as father and you as son and daughter. L- listen to Sinclair Ferguson describe the importance of this idea. It should be on the screen for you. He says it this way. The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, lies at the heart of all Christian theology. Like, if you don't know what God is doing in the world, this is it. He is about making you a son or daughter of his. That's, that's the apex, the, the supreme thing that God's out there doing. Lies at the heart of all Christian theology. And listen to this last phrase. And is the main spring of all Christian living. He's saying if you want to actually live this Christian life out, that this is the spring that sustains a, a fruitful Christian life. That you have to get a sense of your, you know, your, your sonship. That God is a father, that you are a son or daughter of God. This is why J.I. Packer would say this. That if you want to like test and measure how well a person gets and grasps God and the gospel and Christianity, look no further than how well they understand and how well they get and grasp the doctrine of adoption what they make of God as Father. It has that sort of a central role in your life and mine if you're in Jesus, if you're in Christ. So with that said, I want to take one more turn today. Um, Galatians 4. Let me just set up Galatians 4 and what I want you to see out of this uh, passage today uh, by telling you a story. This was an a, a article written and uh, reported on in the LA Times several years ago. They, they wrote about this story of a man and woman, a couple in their early 50s, who died in their home. And as they did the autopsy of the couple, they, they learned that they died of malnutrition. They, this couple, early 50s, starved to death in their own home. And later, as police were kind of doing the investigation, looking around, searching the home, they found inside of a closet within arm's reach of this couple who starved to death a stash of thousands and thousands and thousands worth of dollars like like forty or $50,000 in the closet within arm's reach, yet they starve to death. Okay, now I don't know of a better image and metaphor for how most of us live than that. that, that spiritually speaking, because of our sin, because of suffering, we are malnourished spiritually. Our heart is hurting, our heart is, our heart is aching for more food aching to be satisfied and literally God has stashed in the closet thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gospel promises that gives us everything our heart needs in the middle of sin and suffering. Everything it needs. It's within arm reach and for most of us we are living in such a way that we never reach out and grab it or or maybe even worse that we have forgotten what's in the closet. See, this is the problem of most of our Christian lives right here. Everything we need is within arm's reach, but we aren't reaching for it. We've forgotten what what exists in the closet. We have forgotten the stash of resources that God's given us. Now, this is what Paul is trying to to kind of awaken us to, bring us to life to, help us see in, in Galatians 4. So read this along with me here. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. Look at what it says here. Now, I'm going to start in the ESV, and then I'm going to read you a different translation. So here's the ESV. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I want to switch to the NIV, because I think it's going to say one phrase in such a way that brings out more vivid imagery for us. So here's the NIV of the same two verses. It's also on the screen for you. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And then here it comes. That we might receive the full rights. So in the ESV, it's adoption. In NIV, it's saying your full rights of sons. For us, I love that phrase, and here's what Paul is trying to alert us to with that phrase is that because of Jesus, God has put something in the closet within arm's reach that we have a tendency to forget. We all have a tendency to live our life without reaching for it. That God has put this in the closet, it's called the full right of sonship. It's called all the promises and all the privileges that God has bestowed upon you because he has adopted you, because he is your father and you are his sons and daughters. Paul is saying... You have all of that stuff within arm's reach, your full rights, your privileges, these promises. And and what really verse 5 is in Galatians 4 is an invitation for you to think about those, for you to remember those, for you to recall those, for you to allow your heart to be soaked with all that God has done for you in Jesus, what he has bestowed upon you as he has adopted you. Now, let, let me just express my angst for this sermon this way, and then we'll jump in. My angst is is that I really feel like, going back to the metaphor of a couple dying in their home within arm's reach of everything they needed, I really feel like that is the picture that most of us are living. That the Puritans were fond of saying it this way, that most Christians live well beneath their privileges. That most Christians live in such a way that they are not aware of the privileges and the promises and and just the full right of sonship that God has given to them. Maybe if you want to think about uh, just a way to see the Christian life is it's a journey of becoming more and more alive to the multifaceted rights that God gives his sons and daughters. That's what it, that's what it looks like to, on this journey with God. You becoming and me becoming more and more alive, those things becoming more and more tangible. So I want to make some headway this morning in that, and we could literally talk for years about this, but I want to give you five of the rights that God has given us his sons and daughters. Just five of the many privileges and promises, full rights that he gives us as he adopts us. So, so let me run through these, these five. Number one, what is Paul meaning when he is talking about the full rights of adoption? Here, here's one of those. The privilege of assurance. The privilege of assurance. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that that in 15 years of doing kind of the whole pastoral ministry thing, of just trying to help connect the gospel of Jesus Christ into the lives of people, I don't think that it would be an overstatement to say that the most prevalent problem I come up against when I'm chatting with people across, you know, the table with coffee, and they're talking about their life in the midst of, it could be crisis moments or just the normal grind of life. The most prevalent problem I come up against are people who are not fully convinced that God loves them. They're just suspicious of the love of God for them. They're suspicious of what God thinks about them. That They really kind of think God kind of more tolerates them than loves them. They they just feel like they're living under the constant frown of God. Now, let, let... it is, it is virtually impossible to overstate just how damaging and destructive that is in the Christian life. Dan Kruver, in his book, Reclaiming Adoption, which we're trying to get people to read this month, says it this way. He says, Few things hinder action within the Christian life more than being unsure of God's love for us personally. Just allow that to, to just sink in for a second because it, that's not intuitive. We wouldn't think as we're dealing with all these surface level problems that what is down underneath that is just a failure to really believe that God actually loves us. But, but almost all of our surface level kind of presenting problems in our life go right down into that root issue. I'm just not really believing that God looks at you like a father would look at a son and says, I love you like that. Just not being convinced of that. And here's the good news. In the New Testament, one of the ways the New Testament tries to convince us of God's love for us is by consistently pointing us back to the doctrine of adoption. Pointing us back to the fact that God has adopted us and that we are sons and daughters of God. And adoption tells us two things that we really need to know about this love of God for us. Two things. Let me just give you these two. It tells us two things. It tells us the two things we need to know. And here's the first one. We have to know the kind of love that it is. I heard a pastor say this months ago, and the more I've thought about it, the more I believe it's true. That if we're ever going to fully feel loved by God, we have to know the sort of love, the kind of love with which he loves us. And adoption tells us the sort of love and the kind of love that is. It's fatherly love. Like it's the love that a father would have for a son and daughter. That is personal love. That is particular love. That is passionate love. It is all of that. That's how God loves us. In John 17, there's a really interesting um, moment here. In John 17, where we are getting to overhear Jesus talk to God as Father. So Jesus is inviting us in John 17 to overhear the dialogue that's happening there. And in one point, Jesus is talking to God as Father, and he says this, Father, you have loved them talking about all of those that are in him. You have loved them like you loved me. Now, are you seeing what he's saying there? Okay, now think about this. Think about the way God loves his son, Jesus Christ. That is an energetic love, that is a joyful love, that is a constant love, that's an enduring love, that's a limitless love. It is that sort of a love that he loves his son Jesus Christ with, and Jesus is wanting us to overhear as he says, and you know how God loves you? Like that. That's how God loves you. With that same sort of love. If you can imagine God the Father's heart leaping for joy at the thought of his son Jesus, That is exactly the emotional response God has for you if you're a son or daughter of his. That's what he's showing us here. That God loves us like that. It's that sort of fatherly affection that God has for us that is personal, it's particular, it is to you. And he's saying that just like I love Jesus, that same sort of emotional impact that has, that is the same sort of love that I have for you. I mentioned this several weeks ago. I think one of the defining characteristics of a way a father loves a son is that a father loves loving his son. See, I love a lot of my friends. But there's some days I like have to give myself a pep talk to love them, right? But see, when when, when you're talking about like your son or daughter, like your three, four, five-year-old boy, here's the way I feel about that. There's no pep talk that comes with that. I love loving him. I love loving them, my sons and daughters. I love that. And God, you say that's how God looks at you. That it's not just that he loves you. He doesn't have to like, give himself a pep talk to come and, and rescue you. It's that he loves loving you. That's the sort of love it is. So it tells us that. It tells us the sort, the kind of love that it is. But it also tells us something else. It's something else that we have to know. We have to know the action of his love. And adoption, the doctrine of adoption shows us the extent of what God would do to make us a son and daughter. It shows us the actions behind this word love. When he says, I love you, the doctrine of adoption is showing us all that God has done to make that statement true. Now, you know, we've been going at Stonegate for four years now. And uh, I I am well aware that for many in the room, you were the recipient of really poor fathers. And I I just want to first say, if that's you, because just mentioning that for some in the room just strikes a really deep chord. And if that's you, I just want to say this first. I'm so sorry for that. That, that, I mean, that, that has some of the deepest wounds that could ever be inflicted upon another human being come when that relationship goes really, really bad. And for those that that's you, man, I just want you to know just pastorally, I'm so sorry for that. And just to encourage you in that, I I want you to know this if that's you in the room, that regardless of the wounds that you have experienced in that relationship, the neglect, the abandonment, when God is your father and you are living in that, it has the ability to redeem all of those things. I want you to know that and get a sense of that this morning, if that's you. That God's fatherly love for you can redeem all of what you miss with an earthly father. Now, in talking about poor fathers, let me give you one of what I think are the defining characteristics of a poor father. And there's, there's a lot of them, but let me tell you one of the primary ones. A poor father will always make their sons and daughters earn their love. So so, it's one of those things where, where to sit back and you show me how good you are and you earn it. And then we'll talk about whether or not I love you, whether or not I will accept you, whether or not I will bring you in. See, that, that's where the marks of a poor father. Can I just tell you this to contrast that? That is not the way God loves you. Like one of the things that Galatians 5 is trying to show us is that God will literally do everything he needs to do to come and get you. He makes you do none of the work. He is willing to do all of the work to bring you into his family. This is what Galatians 4 is trying to show us. So look at this in Galatians 4 verse 5. This is the extent that God went to. Okay, so he's not making you perform. He's doing the performing. He is doing everything needed to bring you into the family so that he can love you and can adopt you and can accept you. Here's what he says in in Galatians 4, verse verse 4, or, or chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's what he has done for you is sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you want to know what God has done to bring you into his family, to show you the kind of love, the action behind his love for you, he has slaughtered his son so that he could save you. He has abandoned his son on the cross so that he could adopt you. He he crushed and crucified his son so that he could make you a child. That's what he has done for you. See, it's not God sitting back, arms folded, asking you to perform for him so that he would kind of make the decision on whether or not he would adopt you. It is God coming after you, moving heaven and earth for you so that he could adopt you. This is the kind of love that God has for us. And and here's the truth. The more and more we grow in our awareness of what God has done to love us, the more we grow in that awareness of what God has done, that the extent he was willing to go to love us, the more we will be convinced of his love for us day to day. Like right now in the moment. That The more you're aware of what he's done to love you, the more you're going to feel loved right now. And the doctrine of adoption shows us all that God has done to love you. The the extent that he was willing to go to say redemption, justification, adoption, to make them a son or daughter. this This is the extent I'm willing to go to do that. This privilege of assurance. Maybe I could say it this way. There are few things in your life that will make as much difference for you than actually knowing that God loves you. It's an interesting thing. I saw an interview with uh, Steve Jobs uh, a while back, and the interviewer asked him a really open-ended question. The question was something like, walk us back and describe the turning point in your life. Very open-ended. And Steve Jobs goes back to a moment when he was a young kid, he was adopted, and he's playing with his friends, and his friends start to poke on the fact that he was adopted. And one of them, really trying to give him a hard time, tried, tried to kind of pronounce this over him, that, that you, you know what your adoption means? That you were abandoned by your mom and dad. That's what you are. You're abandoned. Now, let, before I even go a step further in that, let, let me just make this comment. I want to be very sensitive to birth moms who at some point have placed one of their sons or daughters for adoption. The last thing that means is I am abandoning you. What that really means is I actually love you enough to do good to you. That is massively different. So, so they're poking on him and this idea of, of your parents have abandoned you. And he goes home in tears to his parents and he says, is that true? Have I been abandoned? And his parents looked at him and said, no, no, you're seeing that all wrong. This is not an issue of you being abandoned. Here's what your adoption should tell you is that we have chosen you. We have set our affection on you. We love you. And it's so interesting. He describes in that interview, at that moment, everything changed. In that moment, I felt a new confidence In that moment, I actually felt loved. And he kind of goes on to describe, that that kind of opened up the whole door for me to be able to take a risk and to do what's been done in my life was that moment of knowing what adoption means. Now, can we just see if that's what adoption can mean on a horizontal level when a human being adopts another human being, how much more on a vertical level when God adopts us? See, what that's saying is, I love you. And you can be confident in that. Now you can be free to, to risk and even fail at times because you know my love is not dependent upon you, you, you know, you winning or losing. It's not dependent upon you succeeding or failing. It's not dependent upon how perfect you can be. It's dependent upon the, the perfect work of Jesus for you. This is the assurance of that love that adoption shows us. This is what it produces in our life. So this is privilege number one, the assurance of God's love for us. Here's privilege number two. Privilege number two is the privilege of access. The privilege of access. There is an interesting moment in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gathered a people around him and he's teaching them. And, and it's really hard to probably overstate the collective shock that would have happened as he begins his teaching on prayer to this group of people. So he's got them around, and he's teaching on prayer, and he says, this is how you pray. Let me walk you through how it is that you would talk to God, how it is that you would relate to God, and, and Jesus starts like this. He says, this is the first, first couple of words you need to know if you're going to be praying to God. Here's how you refer to him, our Father. Now... Okay, it is impossible to overstate how, how the, the collective kind of face of this crowd, how the jaws would have dropped in that moment. In that moment when he says, our father, and that's our, like how we're relating to God, you would have seen like husbands hitting wives saying, he didn't just say that, did he? There is no way He just said that's how we relate to God, like as a father. There's no way he just said that. There's no way because the way we relate to God is is by by calling him Yahweh. That's the Old Testament name for God. We call God Yahweh. This is is the God Yahweh that, that keeps the God that speaks and everything gets created. He's the God that speaks and these plagues are rained down on Pharaoh. Bad things happen there. This is the God who speaks and the Red Sea is parted. This is Yahweh. He's a big God. He is transcendent. He is powerful. This is the God we know and we refer to him as Yahweh. And we don't even say that word Yahweh out loud because it's so big and so sacred. That's how we relate to God. And in this moment, in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching on prayer, he is reorienting the the people then and us now to something that is absolutely unimaginable. That this huge, God, sacred, big, transcendent God, Yahweh God, is looking at us and saying, do you know what I'm giving you in Jesus? Access that a son would have to his father. That's what I'm giving you. Listen to J.I. Packer describe this. Chapter 19, Knowing God. we talked about it for the last few weeks. I'd encourage you to grab it sometime and read it. But here's what he says. He says, Holy, holy, holy. It's coming out of Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy could be used as a motto text to sum up the theme of the whole Old Testament. The basic idea which the word holy expresses is that of separation or separateness. The whole spirit of Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. This emphasis overshadowed everything else. But in the New Testament, we find that things have changed. God and religion, and religion is using the best sense of the word here, God and religion are not less than they were, but something has been added. A new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. Father is the name by which they call him. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the Holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach him. A boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from the knowledge of his saving work. That's the emphasis of the New Testament. That that we can actually now relate to God, like when we're praying, as like, God, we're, we're talking to our dad. We're talking to our Father. We have that sort of access granted us because of the work of Jesus for us. Now, okay, let me try to apply this and kind of make sense of this. In Luke 11, this is, uh, in, in Luke, Jesus is teaching the same thing. He's just teaching the people on prayer, and he said, this is how you pray, our Father. And as soon as he describes kind of the Lord's prayer there and kind of runs through that, he gives a parable about a man who approaches his neighbor. The man's in need and he approaches his neighbor at at midnight. And the parable goes on to say that the the, the neighbor who is being approached by by the man doesn't get up because he wants to get up. He doesn't get up because, you know, at the end of the day, he really wants to go serve this guy. That's not the reason he gets up. It says he gets up because of his persistence. Now that word persistence, commentators are quick to pick up on this, could also be translated shamelessness. Okay, so let me try to make sense of what he's saying in the context of God as Father, our praying, what, what, what that parable is saying. He is saying that there is a way that a neighbor would relate to, a, to, you know, a friend would relate to a neighbor that would require unbelievable boldness and almost a shamelessness that would come around and describe that. Where that same behavior, if it's done from a child's perspective to a father, would seem absolutely normal. So let me give you an illustration. If your neighbor knocks on your door at 3 a.m., I mean, they are banging on your door. I mean, you would think something bad is going down. You, everybody in the family wakes up. The lights come on. You open the door, and he says, hey, I, I, would, you, would you mind giving me a glass of water? Now, in that moment, would we all say that is weird behavior, if you're a neighbor and you do that to me, we're having to talk about that. I mean, there is something wrong in that moment. That is weird, sort of shameless, wow. That, that's weird. Now, okay, can, can we put it in a different context? If you've got a three-year-old son in your house and they bang on your bedroom door and they bang till the lights come on and you get up and you open the door and they say, dad, I need a cup of water. You know what's going to happen? You're going to do it. And you know what? That's not going to feel weird to you, is it? That's going to feel absolutely normal. See, there is a way that a child relates to his father that no other person relates to that man in the same way. Are you seeing that? That there is, there is a shamelessness that is normal when it's a son relating to his father. And that same shamelessness would be absolutely abnormal and weird if any other person relates to the man that way. I heard one guy uh, describe it in terms of like the president so let's just let's just assume for a second that you are the person that banged on the door at 4 am on I mean, you're talking the White House door and you are asking the President of the United States to get up at 4 am why because you need a drink of water. Now we would all say that is absolutely ridiculous. there is no level you there's no way you could expect that level of care and intimacy and provision from the president of the United States for you, just a normal person. But if the president of the United States happens to be your dad, you don't feel bad about that at all, do you? If he happens to be your dad when he hears the knock, it doesn't matter if he's the president of the United States to everyone else. He's going to get up for you. Why? Because you're his dad or he's your dad. Are you seeing that? See, this is what this is what we're seeing with access. That's the biblical picture of the access we have with God. He is the king of the universe. And because you are a son or daughter of his, you can be bold and shameless in the way that you would come after him and run after him. That's the sort of access you have been granted by God Almighty when he adopted you and made you a son. So maybe we could just ask it this way to apply it. Do you have that sort of attitude with God? I mean, you have that sort of a feel in in the way that you relate to God? And I think you can see this most clearly in the way that you would pray. See, if God really feels like a father to you, you will be relentless in the way you pray. You will pester God till he gets up out of the bed and you will not feel bad about it. See, that's the way we will relate to God when we actually feel the full rights of sonship, that we actually feel that we have this access. See, I've got a five-year-old in my house. Her name's Hannah. And let me tell you what I've never heard Hannah do. When I'm in my study working on a sermon, let's say, I've never heard her quietly knock on the door and just kind of barely peek in and say, hey, uh, dad, I know you're really busy. You know, I know you're doing some important stuff. I know you've got a job to do and, and, you know, all this is important. But when you get a second, I just, I'd love to, to run something by you. I have never heard that from my five-year-old. Do you know what I hear from my five-year-old? I don't, I mean, it's just like a bang when she hits the door, right? And she floods into the room and she spills out everything that's on her heart in that moment. She is shameless in the way that she would, she would throw that out. See, that's how, that's how a child relates to a father. And that is how God is asking you. He has privileged you with the right of relating to him that way. So this is the privilege of access. This is why in Hebrews four sixteen the Bible says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need. We can approach it with confidence like that, like a five-year-old running into the office of her dad. That's, that's the privilege of access. Number three. So we've got assurance. We've got access. And number three, we've got the privilege of provision. The privilege of provision. So adoption shows us, as we're living in the full rights as sons and daughters of God, it shows us that we have the privilege of God's love. that We can be assured of that love. It shows us that we have access to God that we can bust in the office, we can pester God. And he invites that from us. But it also means that he has given himself, taken on in himself, the obligation of our care and provision in this life. That God has said, you're my son and daughter. And just like if you were to adopt a son or daughter, you would be looking at them and saying, and now I'm taking on the care for you, your provision in life. God is saying, when I adopt you, guess what I'm doing? I'm giving you the full right of knowing that I am on the hook for your provision and care. Now, let me just be clear on this. That does not mean your life will be trouble-free. That does not mean that God is somehow going to be like your sugar daddy who's going to give you everything you want. That's not what we're getting at. It doesn't mean that God's going to be some sort of a Santa Claus who you just kind of make your wish list and bam, it just magically shows up one day. That's not the point of saying God is going to provide for you. It's actually much better than that. That the idea of this privilege, uh, you know, this privilege of provision means that God has pledged himself to be involved in the daily details of your life. That God is in for all of that. That God cares about all of those daily little details. Like that you brought in right now that you are worried, sick about. God is saying, I am taking it upon myself to care about those with you. Now, rather than trying to convince you of this, I just want to read a passage and allow God to try to convince you of this. So this is going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It's going to be on the screen for you. You're welcome to flip there. But I just want you to to feel what it is that God is saying in Matthew 6 here. Listen to this. And more than anything, I just, I just want you to get a sense of this. The most important thing you could do right now is maybe even just close your eyes and listen just listen well. Try to absorb what he's saying here. So this is Jesus talking. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I just wonder how many of us walked in the room right now and we are full of anxiety and, and worry. He says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then look, watch what he does here. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Do you see the logic? That's birds, you know, how God would relate to them. What do you think God would think about you as a son? Verse 27, as a daughter. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, richest man that's ever lived, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed or clothed like one of these. Verse 30, here's the logic. But if God so clothes the grass of the field... Which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? In verse 32, for the Gentiles, we might say for the orphans, seek after all these things. And listen, to I love this last phrase. And your, that is personal. If you're in Christ, that is a personal promise. And your heavenly father, I love this word, knows. He knows. You know, like every one of those anxieties that, that you brought in today, I got a saying right here, he knows every one of them. He is your father who cares about every one of them. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Are, are you seeing the logic If that is how God would care for for birds, I mean, don't you think he would care for his son in a uniquely and vastly different way? If that is how God cares for grass, how much more for you, a son or daughter of his? This is the logic. And then that logic needs to grip some of our hearts this morning. I mean, it's the same, it's the similar logic that's used in Romans 8.32, where the Bible says he, talking about God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, now here's the logic. So, so if he did that, will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Like everything that we need. Will he not, if he's given us Jesus, if he's taking care of this whole thing, if he's given us that big thing, how much more should we know that God's going to be willing to give us all the smaller things in life? You see the logic there? But I mean, some of us really need that logic to convince our heart this morning that God is a good father and we've got the right of provision from God. You know, for those who this morning, you came in just buried in worry and anxiety. Now, I just, I want you to hear this. That the antidote to that worry and, and anxiety is God's fatherhood of you. It's you knowing the full rights that God has bestowed upon you, namely the right of Provision. He is bestowed upon you as a son or daughter. Number four. It's the privilege of provision. Number four, the privilege of providential protection. Of providential protection. God's providence, let me just define, it's a big word, providence, big words. Let me just define that for you so we've got a working definition. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over. So God is sovereign, he rules over everything, He is sovereign over everything, and he's actually caring for creation. So it's, God's providence is his constant care for and absolute rule over all his creation to this end, to do this, for his own glory and the good of his people, the good of his sons and daughters. So here's what providence is teaching, that God is a father who loves us who is strong enough to to, to be sovereign over everything and this strong God who loves us will never allow things into our life that are ultimately not going to be for our eternal good. That's providence. That God is promising. He's giving you the full right of knowing this about himself. It's kind of like Romans 8, you know, 28. It's that idea that if you love God, you you need to know you're called according to his purpose, that he's going to work all things out for your good. That God is sovereign. That he, that he's ruler. He's powerful. And that sovereign God is your, is, is your father who will never allow something into your life unless it's going to be ultimately for your good. This is what he's teaching here, that we have that right, that we can know that, that every tear we ever cry on planet earth, God is bottling every one of those up, every one of those stuffed into a bottle, and they're going to be reopened in eternity and turned into eternal joy for you. That, this is God's providential protection over you. Now, let me try to describe in a metaphor what our problem is with God's protection over us, his providential protection. So, in our house, we have a five year old, a, a three year old, and a two year old. It's crazy. And that means that we are in like the stage. We are consistently taking them for like various vaccinations and shots at the doctor. Now, if if you were to to approach Hannah, our five-year-old, and just say the word doctor, she's like instantly going to flinch because we've had bad experiences at the doctor's office. And let me just give you one of those. We take her to the doctor's office and she knows what's coming. She knows the shot is on the horizon. So mom and dad have to like hold her down. Not because we're trying to punish her, but because we're trying to be good parents to her. We have to hold her down. In addition to us, they bring in like 47 nurses. (laughs) We have to like, every little, you know, extremity has to have like four people on it. We hold her down as the doctor brings out the long needle. She sees it and is absolutely terrified, right? I mean, she's looking at me in the eye thinking, dad, why don't you do something about this? And I'm having to look at her and I'm having to plead with her. Because listen, you can't explain that to a five-year-old. How are you going to explain a vaccination to a 5 year Good luck with that, right? So, so you just have to know that you can't explain that to a five-year-old. Here's the only thing I can do in that moment. I get down in front of her face and I say, Hannah, you know that your daddy loves you, right? You know that you can trust your dad. You know your dad would not let this happen if if this wasn't ultimately a good thing. You know that, right? And she's, you know, like nodding yes, but saying no, you know, in this moment. And that is our problem with God's providential protection, isn't it? Is that the problem is God can't explain everything that's happening in our life. Our minds cannot comprehend it. And so can I just describe to you what it means to live as a son or daughter of God in the midst of suffering? It means that much like Hannah, kind of in this moment we're holding her down, that there's got to be moments in our life when we just don't understand what's happening and why it's happening. But when we are living in the moment, in those moments as sons and daughters of God, here's what that means, that we can trust God even when we don't understand. That, That we can, as the Puritans used to say, that we can trust his heart even when we can't trace his hand. that that we can know in those moments that that we know he's not out to get us. We know this is not ill will. We know this is a father who loves us, who has promised and pledged himself for our protection. So we can always know in the midst of suffering that even when we don't understand it, that somehow in some way, God is using this for our eternal good. Now, I want to give you the opposite end of that. When we refuse that in the midst of suffering, when we refuse to allow ourselves to go there, to trust God, even when we don't understand, what we're really doing in that moment is refusing the full right of a son or daughter of God see when we 're living in the full rights here when we 're living in, as sons and daughters, it produces in us the ability to say to God, I have no idea why you would be allowing this, but I know ultimately it 's got to be for something good. It allows us to trust him even when we can 't trace it so This is what it looks like to live as a son or daughter of God and Now, I know that for so many of us in the room right now, we are in the midst of those seasons where we have no idea what God is doing. Now, I just pray that this moment might be one of those where the Spirit of God would grab your heart and convince you right now that you can trust God even when you can't trace it. That even when you don't understand that God's still trustworthy in the midst of that. And lastly, and we're done, privilege number five is the privilege of an unthinkable future. And I'm talking unthinkable, And it's that good. It is an unthinkable future. Now here is the great news of adoption. Is in the doctrine of adoption, the good news of adoption. It's not just that God puts us in his family. As great as that is, it's that God puts us in his future. Are we seeing the difference in that? It's not just like we're in the family today. It's that like, In the years to come, we are going to be experiencing all that is the family of God. That we're in his future. And listen, that future is unimaginable. See, here's the thing with adoption. It is a present reality, like a present experience that has all of these future promises associated with it. Now let me just read Romans 8. And I want to just give you one of those here. This is Romans 8. And again, I just want you to to, to put yourself in the position right now as you're listening to this, to just be able to feel the weight of what it is that Paul's trying to communicate. Romans 8, starting in verse 18. It'll be on the screen. Paul says this, For I consider, and he's just come off of talking about how we've received adoption as sons. And he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What an amazing verse that is. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Isn't that interesting? That there is a sense in which the grass, which every other animal on the planet is longing for what will be the children of God, for what is coming to the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Now listen to this phrase, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's a really interesting phrase, that last one there, right? So like if I'm asking, or when I read that, here's the questions I'm asking. But, but aren't we already adopted? I mean, hasn't God, like if we're in Christ, aren't we already in the family? Yes, you are already in the family if you're adopted. You are already adopted. But but it says here that we're waiting for adoption. Yes, that there is this already but not yet component to this adoption. That there is already a present experience of adoption that you and I have. We are in God's family. We are sons and daughters. God is a father to us. But here's what Paul is trying to wake us up to. That the best is yet to come that there is a day coming when the full weight and privileges of adoption are going to land with such force on our heart that that Romans 8.18 are going to be true. Do, Do you remember that? Where we started off there? Let me just read this again. Paul says this, In light of this adoption coming, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying this, That there's going to be a moment coming that's going to be so big, so huge. So much is going to happen in that moment where God the Father sends our elder brother Jesus to split the sky open where all the earthly graves are empty. Like that that moment's going to be so big when, when that day happens, when the new heavens and the new earth come down. That moment is going to be so big that it's going to make every one of our real and present day sufferings seem lying. Seem like not a big deal. Like I almost forgot that happened. It's going to make it feel like that to us. I love how um, an old Scottish preacher used to encourage his people with this thought of Romans eight eighteen. He says it this way, talking about suffering and what's to come for us. He says it this way. You feel like you've had a bad life. Do you feel that way? You feel like you're grieving for the things you seem to be losing. If you feel that way, he says this, keep a record of them all, everything that you have lost, every, every hardship that you've encountered, keep a record of them all. Go ahead, keep a bill. And on the last day, go to your father and give him that bill of suffering and watch how he makes good on it all. One instant of glory will outweigh all the debts you've been accruing. See, so this is what Paul's saying, that what's to come is that good that it's going to cancel out the debt of all of our suffering now, and more so. I, really what I'm hoping in this moment is that God would just begin to whet our appetite for what's to come. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life, and you know, I don't know where this would happen for you, I've, I've had three or four of these, where you're kind of in that moment, and this overwhelming thought comes upon you of like, life does not get better than this. It just doesn't get better than this. It's like one of those moments that you would like to bottle up that moment, you know, like put it on the shelf and be able to open it back up and relive it every day. It's like that moment, you know. If you've had one of those, you know what I'm talking about, where there's just this overwhelming feeling of, man, it does not get better than what this is right here. And you know what the Bible's telling us in in Romans 8? As much as that may feel true, it's not, that it actually does get better than that. Like It's telling us this, that, that our, our most ordinary moments in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, are going to be far better than the most perfect moments now. Now listen to Randy Alcorn explain this. He says it this way, and we're done. He says, life in the, on the new heaven and earth will be like sitting in front of a fire with family and friends, basking in the warmth, laughing loudly, dreaming of the adventures to come, and then going out and living those adventures together. With no fear that life will ever end or that tragedy will descend like a dark cloud. With no fears that dreams will be shattered or relationships broken. Saying this is what you can expect. This is what's coming. This is what's on the horizon for sons and daughters of God. He says Jesus will be there and joy, I love this phrase, joy will be the air we breathe. And just when you think it doesn't get any better than this, here's the good news. It will. That's our privileges. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.